0: hey everybody and welcome on in for another episode of rethink reshoring i'm kelly nix here with rosemary coats and it's great to be back Rosemary, so glad to have you with me again. It's been a couple weeks since I've been on the show. We've had some really great guests, so I'm happy to get to be sitting with you once again. Yeah, good to see you again, Kaylee. So we've got a pretty good episode on tap for today. We're talking kind of the manufacturing super cycle, what's coming. And this is a topic that is not just in our B2B media cycle now. It's kind of hitting mainstream media as well. And there's a little bit of I think, kind of misinformation floating out there about what a manufacturing supercycle actually is and what it looks like from a supply chain perspective, what it looks like from a reshoring perspective, and how labor, again, another hot button topic, ties all into it. So we're going to dig through that today, and we're going to start off by talking about the term manufacturing supercycle. What does that mean and where does it come from? Yeah, I,
1: I was, um, you know, really sat up and took notice when I saw that the first time. Uh, it's from a, um, economist at Bank of America. His name is Joseph Quinlan. And he was looking at all kinds of indicators. He watches the manufacturing, uh, sector and, uh, 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 he, Designated it as a manufacturing super cycle because of all those indicators that he sees. And boy, I agree with that. I think it's a perfect way to uh, characterize what's going on in manufacturing right now. We're seeing a lot of growth and um, investment and um, government assistance and all sort of thing, all sorts of things that are contributing
0: to what uh, is
1: termed as now the manufacturing super cycle.
0: If you go back into kind of the mid part of the 1900s, right, and really coming out of World War II into kind of this 1950s, this massive boom that we saw across the United States, what a lot of people think of when they hear the classic, the American dream, right? Manufacturing was kind of the catalyst for all of that. And a lot of the American dream standard was tied to someone who worked a manufacturing job, tied to government investment, in manufacturing, and seeing manufacturing as a really great opportunity and a really, really good path for the United States average worker to take. Some of that kind of fell off, I think, because we went through this technology revolution. We see a lot of folks working desk jobs. And there's been kind of some undervalue and underinvestment in manufacturing the last decade or so. Why do you think that is? Yeah,
1: well, back in the 1950s and 60s after World War II, manufacturing represented upwards of 25% of the uh, U.S. economy. So we were the, pa- the manufacturing powerhouse for sure, um, supplying all kinds of manufactured goods around the world, especially to economies that were recovering. Uh, and slowly but surely over a period of years um that deteriorated some as other countries came online and started doing their own manufacturing germany for example uh recovered after the war and started uh, their their journey to being a a manufacturing superstar um and then uh with globalization slowly but surely after the year 2000 we started seeing a lot of manufacturing go to low-cost countries, particularly to China. And once China ascended to the World Trade Association in 2001, Um, they, the door sort of flew open and, um, it was a low cost country. There were no barriers to trade. And so a lot of manufacturing actually went to China. And as a result of that, as you, as you said, as you mentioned, there was underinvestment in manufacturing in the U S because it looked like to a lot of private investors that, it wasn't really worth it to invest in manufacturing here because most stuff was going overseas or to some other low cost country. So to turn things around, I think, you know, what, what really happened was the pandemic exposed so much risk in these long global supply chains. So uh, if you are manufacturing in uh, the middle of China somewhere and it takes, you know, a long time to communicate back and forth then even longer to ship goods to the U.S. And if we have no alternative places to manufacture, all these things were exposed during the pandemic. Uh, And so, you know, we sort of sat up and started paying attention all of a sudden. Um, It was funny because I used to tell people what I did for a living, that I worked on global supply chains and global manufacturing, their eyes would sort of glaze over. It wasn't very interesting. But all of a sudden, during the pandemic, these supply chains became our lifeline. And, you know, we all experienced um, shortages and trying to find PPE and masks and uh, and sanitizers and all of that. You know, we all remember that shortages of toilet paper and so forth. So, you know, it exposed this uh, vulnerability that we have in the U.S., um, because we haven't paid attention to manufacturing for a long time, neither in the public or the private se- sector. So there was a significant amount of underinvestment. And the other thing that I think is key is that America has never had an industrial policy. So we are sort of a hands-off economy. We believe in the market running things. So if there's a need in the marketplace that we fulfill that need because we're a market economy, Uh, but most other nations have some kind of industrial policy where they at least focus on manufacturing some things. So, you know, this was a good opportunity for us to really understand, um, what, what, um, what kind of uh, products that we need to invest in? What should we be manufacturing here, and so forth? And so we, um, you know, we uncovered uh, a lot of areas where we need to refocus on manufacturing. And so, in that way, is a good thing. We've refocused our efforts, and now are in this build cycle again, which has been termed, as I mentioned, this guy Joseph Quinlan at uh, Bank of America.
0: Has turned um, termed a manufacturing supercycle. So right now we're seeing a very very vested interest from the government in funding a lot of these manufacturing opportunities, and I think that it's pretty unique in a way that we're seeing it done right. I think typically when you expect a Democratic president, if you're looking at the stereotypical liberal versus very, very conservative, people think a conservative side of things is looking at hometown manufacturing and keeping jobs in America and that being a very conservative value, not expected to see being passed by a liberal president, which is fascinating that we're seeing this coming out of President Biden's administration and seeing the bills that have been passed do so with almost pretty bipartisan support. We have seen now three major acts be passed through Congress these last few years, which are having a massive influx into the economy. The Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Sciences Act, and the Infrastructure Act. Let's go through each one of those and talk a little bit about how they are now contributing to this manufacturing super cycle. We'll start off with the Chips and Sciences Act, because that's the one that we don't hear a whole lot about.
1: Yeah, so... Yes, I mean, we have to get over this partisan thing and think more about what's good for the U.S. economy, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in office or whatever. We need to really focus on manufacturing in America because that's the backbone of the economy. And actually, you can see that um, with respect to building uh, economies after World War II, Germany focused on manufacturing and look how strong their economy is today. And the same is true with China. Um, even though, you know, we shipped all our manufacturing there, they built their super heated economy on the backbone of manufacturing. So we need to do mm-hmm. that again here in the U.S. today. Even though our cost structures are can be sometimes prohibitive. So you mentioned the three acts. Um, <clears throat> we'll start with the Chips and Sciences Act, which is probably... The one that's gotten the most attention recently, <clears throat> because it includes um, investment funding for semiconductors. And if you think about it, semiconductors are in everything. Uh, everything. Our our um, our automobiles, our phones, our blenders in the kitchen, our hair dryers. I I dropped the cord to my hair dryer the other day and split open. And sure enough, there's a chip in the. <laughs> in the hairdryer. And I thought, wow, that's kind of amazing. You know, uh, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And so if we don't manufacture those ourselves, we can be a real problem, especially in the defense and aerospace and electronics industry. And uh, we haven't been. I mean, we shipped most of our manufacturing of chips uh, overseas in the past 20 years or so. And particularly to Taiwan, to Taiwan Semiconductor. And now it's time to bring that back. And so um, the government has invested and passed this um, bipartisan bill called the Chips and Sciences Act to focus on semiconductors and other advanced science projects um, to develop, continue to develop products and, um, and technologies for the U.S. economy. So the Chips and Sciences Act um, is injecting billions of dollars into chip manufacturing. And we're seeing now uh, that there's co-investment by a lot of companies and um, semiconductor plants being men- being um, being started and um, developed and built in Arizona, New Mexico, Idaho, Texas, uh, Ohio, New York, and other places that are potential opportunities these are big, billion-dollar manufacturing sites. I mean, these are, you know, it's not easy to to manufacture semiconductors, a lot of technology, really a lot of investment and so forth. Uh, So the Chips and Sciences Act was uh, the one that's getting the most attention right now, I think, because there's so much investment in that area. But the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act are also extremely important. So the... Inflation Reduction Act has funding for a lot of green technology. So there's billions of dollars that are being um, put into the U.S. economy and it's starting to trickle in. I think it's kind of not quite there yet. We're not seeing the big boom yet. Uh, but it's starting to trickle into these industries, particularly green manufacturing. So things like windmills um, and alternate uh, sources of energy beyond um, beyond oil and gas. Um, and so that's in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's where the big uh, investment dollars are for, for green energy. And then finally, the Infrastructure Act, and I know the audience here who are uh, moving goods across America, understand how important this is um, to repair our roads and our bridges uh, and to rebuild some of our port capability and redo our airports. You know, it used to be you'd fly into LaGuardia um, and it was like going to a third world country. I mean, it was dirty and gross and really old fashioned and so forth. Now they've done a lot of remodeling lately, so it doesn't look so bad. But by comparison to some of these other worldwide airports, uh, I just got back from Switzerland and uh, flying into Zurich. You know, it's a very modern hub. Um, Beijing has a fantastic airport. I mean, these are worldwide airports that are so much farther advanced than what we have in the U.S. They look better, they operate better and so forth. So infrastructure for not only roads and bridges but also for uh, for airports and seaports is very important as a backbone to manufacturing. I mean, if you you know manufacture stuff in the U.S., that's great, but if you can't move it anywhere, that's a huge problem. So those three acts are investing a lot of dollars now. In parallel, what we're also seeing is that private investment now is also. Investing in manufacturing. And so this is pretty exciting because when you've got the government doing these big, massive projects, uh, and you've got private investors that are doing the supporting projects, you're going to see a huge increase in, in what's happening in manufacturing in America. And of course, that's our thing at the Reshoring Institute. So we're, we're really excited to see all this hub of activity.
0: Every conversation that was had from me at the end of the pandemic or coming out of the tail end of kind of the end of 2022, everybody's conversation was, okay, well, how does America now survive and thrive off of the heels of this global event? And a lot of the answers were that public-private partnership and seeing the public-private partnership, if it works, it's going to be fantastic. If it doesn't, it's going to be disastrous to the American economy. I think we're still in that very first stages of this public-private partnership. But as you mentioned so far, things seem to be moving along at a pretty decent speed. And that's relatively speaking for the government, right? Nothing moves fast in the government. But from some of these industries that are really working on this public-private partnership, where are some of the most impactful benefits going to be seen? Are we talking about the way that transportation is done? Are we talking about infrastructure for our ports? Or are we talking about individual companies who are seeing investment from the private side, but also from grants looking to reassure their operations and really shore things up here?
1: Yeah, I think we're seeing it from all sides. To be honest with you, I mean, we see this big injection of government spending, uh, the private sector investment. Let, let's take Walmart for example. Uh, Walmart started this project called the Lighthouse Initiative um, about a year ago, and so I, I participated in one of their planning sessions, uh, which was an all-day planning session, trying to figure out potentially what um, what apparel. They could manufacture in the US. Now, when you think about it, I mean, we've seen apparel come back uh, over the past five years or so, especially for high end apparel like women's business attire and that sort of thing. But the kind of mass production that Walmart does with t shirts and, um, you know, casual apparel, thousands and thousands and thousands of these pieces of apparel. It's sort of a perfect match with the low cost environment, so China, Bangladesh, those kind of places. However, Walmart, um, in their with their U.S. Jobs initiative, decided they wanted to to get really serious about bringing manufacturing back and helping U.S. manufacturers. And about a year ago, they started this Lighthouse project to determine what sectors they could boost to bring manufacturing back. And they've just announced um, a new partnership with some apparel companies um, to produce apparel in the U.S. And, and I think they haven't announced the exact locations yet. But when you think about it, it's mass production of products that are going to be sold at Walmart, manufactured in the U.S., which is a relatively high cost area. So, in order to do that, they need to have a lot of automation, a lot of um, process improvement, uh, a lot of ways to take out cost out of those cycles, so that they can go forward with that. Um, you know, one of the other uh, big indicators that we're seeing right now is um, the industrial real estate is up about fifteen percent. Now, when you think about commercial real estate, there are all kinds of buildings. There's, you know, office buildings and strip malls and all sorts of things. But the industrial sector focuses on um, manufacturing particularly, but also trucking terminals, um, you know any kind of facilities that help with a uh, manufacturing sector, warehouses, um, you know Amazon warehouses, that sort of thing. And that sector you know kind of stumbled along for for a while um, and now even year over year it's up 15%. A 15% is a big jump. It's essentially doubled what the investment was even a year ago. So if you know there's companies out there looking for real estate, you know, there's something going on. So that's another indicator. Um Yeah, I, I you know, one of the other things that we watch is um manufacturing sector employment. So the Department of Labor publishes some statistics about new jobs, um, in the manufacturing sector. Um, and there are some other sort of questionable, I guess I would say, statistics that are published by different companies, uh, but they all have positive indicators. So we think that uh, manufacturing jobs in the U.S. are up about 200,000 per year, which is a you know fairly good clip considering that uh, manufacturing used to be in the 1950s and 60s, you know 25% of our economy today it's down around 11%, so it's fairly small. but now growing again. So we're hoping that we
0: increase those percentages significantly. So that's the perfect spot to transition into our final topic of the day, and it's labor. And labor has, of course, been front of everybody's mind now for just about a year. Started off with the conversations around the railroads last year. We've seen it move into the port workers, into UPS, and now United Auto Workers are striking. And of course, this has a pretty big implication on manufacturing because it's at the big three automakers. Can you talk a little bit about how the auto worker strike fits into the manufacturing super cycle? And if... The power that we're seeing given over to the labor side of things has any kind of bearing on where manufacturing goes?
1: Yeah, I I think it's a really big and interesting indicator. So you know, we were talking earlier about um, semiconductor manufacturing, and actually, Taiwan Semiconductor is uh, investing in a huge plant in uh, Phoenix, and um, uh, one of the things they did recently was put on put a pause on that construction. Not for any other reason other than they don't have enough labor. They can see the labor pools going to be constricted um, in the next year or so. So they put a pause on it until they can redevelop sources of labor for that manufacturing strike or that manufacturing site. So things like looking at labor strikes um, and the sort of the churn in the labor market right now. I think is also an important indicator. You know, we're we're at sort of historically low unemployment rates, although there are still millions of people out of work, and that's perhaps because they don't have the skills for the jobs that are open. So we're seeing a, a shift in those. Um, the the automotive the auto worker strike um, and actually the writer strike in Hollywood also are related in a way. Um, that uh, wages have not caught up to where they should be, in terms of um, the company, company's revenue and so forth. I mean, back in two thousand eight, when we had to bail out the automakers, that was one thing. When when workers and everyone across the board took a took a haircut in terms of their uh, their salaries or their wages. Uh, But in today's environment, the auto workers, for example, and the same is true in Hollywood, they're making record profits. I mean, it's kind of um, amazing how much money is being made, and yet they haven't shared that with the workers. So, you know, we need to readjust that thinking so that the workers are being paid um, a reasonable wage in comparison to, you know, what the company is earning. Um, So, you know, not just trying to Push down the wages all the time, and you know, trying to force minimum wage or alternative working situations like 10.99 employees and that sort of thing to keep wages low. Instead of that, we need to rethink that and pay uh, people living wages, more like they do in in Germany. I, I keep going back to Germany because I think they're a pretty good example. So <clears throat> the strike fits really well into. Uh, what's going on in the environment and also in support of this manufacturing super cycle? Because if we can attract new manufacturing workers that have better skills and, and higher wages, um, then we can grow that sector effectively. So that's, that's really important too. And uh, all these things are indicators for us, of course, at the Reshoring Institute. We're always interested in, <clears throat> excuse me, we're always interested in, um, ways to uh, improve and grow and expand manufacturing in America. So, you know, all these different factors are what we have to take into consideration. I think it's, it's not a, a silver bullet where we can just say, you know, let's bring all the manufacturing back now. We need to consider how do we do it reasonably well? How do we find the skills and train employees to manufacture in today's environment? Um, you know, we like to say it's not your grandfather's manufacturing. Um, my grandfather was a metal worker at Hazy Taylor in Warren, Ohio. Um, and th- that job looks completely different today. Um, today is controlled by computers and machine tools and so forth. And, and the skills to uh, operate in that environment are also very different. So we need to focus on developing a different kind of skill set to support advanced manufacturing that's full of automation in the future. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think the strike, looking for better wages, understanding the uh, incorporation of AI into a work environment like the writers are talking about. I mean, they want to use AI tools, but they also don't want to be put out of a job. So, Uh, You know, collective bargaining on behalf of those writers and and actors um, to be able to, you know, work reasonably well and creatively with AI is an important uh, approach and idea going forward. So I think all these, you know, labor issues and so forth are all contributing to this movement forward, which we're calling the manufacturing super cycle.
0: So young people, if you're watching this, manufacturing might be a great career for you. Folks who are looking for a transition, maybe check out manufacturing as well. Rosemary, thank you for joining us today for Rating reshoring, Great to have you as always. And of course, if people want to catch up with you guys at the Reshoring Institute, where can they go to do that?
1: Yeah. um, So uh, visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org. You can contact us through the website. And that's where we publish everything that we learn and survey and write about manufacturing in America.
0: Awesome. Thank you guys for tuning in with us today. If you've missed any of our previous episodes of Rethink Reshoring, head on over to our YouTube channel. That's just youtube.com slash freightwaves and you'll find them all there in the Rethink Reshoring playlist on the sidebar. We'll be back next Tuesday. So until then, have a great week and we will see you then.